With the emergence of sofosbuvir, a new drectactin antiviral, treatment for hepatitis C infection is currently ongoing its greatest change since the discovery of the virus 25 years ago. However, manufacturer of the new treatment, Gilead, are under fire for the cost of the drug. It's around $1,000 a pill or $80,000 for a course of treatment. To discuss how the new drug was discovered and came to market, I'm joined by Victor Roy, who's a doctoral researcher in sociology at the University of Cambridge and author of an analysis article just published on the bmj.com. Hi, Victor. Hello. Good Thank- to join you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so, could you tell us how Gilead got to have this successful hep C treatment? You know, lots of companies have been looking at this for a long time. How did they get there? Yeah, so we can actually start, um, it's worth mentioning that the hep C virus was discovered in 1989 and there's a whole chain of actors involved before um, Gilead comes into the picture here. So after the virus was discovered, for a long period of time actually, companies couldn't develop drugs because you couldn't test whether the virus responded to antiviral compounds because you couldn't grow the virus in, in, in cell culture. Mm. which is what drug development um, requires. And so um, because the hep C virus was stubborn, it required quite a bit of time to develop the kind of research tools um, that publicly funded researchers at universities in the U.S. and Germany were able to develop uh, called a subgenomic replicon. And this actually allowed researchers to develop the parts of the virus that then drug developers could then develop compounds to and see whether the virus responded, whether it actually eliminated the virus, for example. And so this public funding was really crucial early on. Once this Replicon was developed, a lot more companies, many more companies got involved in the chase for trying to develop hepatitis C drugs. One of these companies that used the Replicon was uh, called Pharmacet. It emerged from a publicly funded lab at Emory. And this company, over the course of the 2000s, raised private funding from venture capital as well as stock-based financing from an IPO to develop the compound Sofosbuvir, and uh, once the company had taken the drug through phase two clinical trials and it showed great promise with really high cure rates, um, Gilead then made an acquisition for Pharmacet of, of $11 billion that was announced in November of 2011, and then Gilead was able to run the phase three trials and combine Sofosbuvir with some of its in-house compounds to come up with uh, shorter regimens. Mm-hmm and ultimately bring it to market over the last two years, different combinations of the sofosbuvir-based compounds. So there, in a way, sort of Gilead outsourced almost its R&D. Is that purchase of Pharmacet, of companies like Pharmacet, by big companies like Gilead, unique? Is it widespread? What's going on there? So it's a, it's a pretty widespread um, phenomenon that you have to look at the last 20 or 30 years in drug development. It's sort of been an evolution in which... Uh, And there's a couple of forces driving this. One is actually looking at uh, the financial and shareholder imperatives that are driving large companies. Um, And then we can also look at what's going on with universities and small startups. So what's going on with large companies? um, in In a time in which this idea of maximizing shareholder value over the last 20 or 30 years has really taken root and taken hold for what companies are expected and for whom they're expected to deliver um, growth for. In many of these cases, a company like Gilead is expected to grow at a 10% annual growth clip. 
um, it's not just that profits matter, it's that really they need to see growth in the profits mm -hmm. in a short-term base, right? So when companies are trying to deliver the short-term growth and they have existing medicines going off patent and perhaps their own compounds um, not showing the kind of promise that they're hoping for, turning to these short-term acquisitions or these late-stage acquisitions is really a, a short-term way of being able to deliver um, and generate that kind of growth. And in that same period of time, what we've seen is that public funding, uh, along with universities and venture capitalists, have matured and are providing, in many cases, that uncertain early stages of research where a lot of innovation happens. And almost the relationship is becoming one in which small startups and universities and publicly funded research are suppliers of innovation for big companies that can't take on that long-term risk that is um, required for drug development because the stock-based sort of shareholder-driven system doesn't allow for it. And, I mean, do we have any numbers on that? How much of the industry is doing it? Is it becoming a new norm? We cite one Deloitte paper, for example, that shows that companies, they were trying to look at the best practices of the, of the winning companies and that 70% of their revenues came from acquisitions um, or compounds that were um, through acquisitions. Now, if we go back to Pharmacet, the company that developed this originally, it was out of a publicly funded lab at Emory University. Um, so was the drug developed with public funds or a mixed model of public and private? Or you know, where did the, the cash come from to actually support the development of the drug? So the, the lab, as you're saying, uh, at Emory University, also a partnership with the VA, it existed with public funding for quite a bit of time um, during the, from the 80s and the 90s uh, onward into the 2000s. And so the research, uh, the long-term research it grew out of was publicly supported. Now, Pharmacet itself was spun out from this lab, and it received some small grants that were uh, important at the very early stages of the company, um, but then the once, especially once the Replicon was developed, um, along with this public funding, Pharmacet was also able to attract venture capital. So there was a mix of public and private funding involved in the process. Mm. And then um, Pharmacet was bought for eleven billion. Where did that money go to? Is it you know, who who owned it beforehand? I suppose. So th this money would go to the Pharmacet's um, shareholders. And so people like Ray Shinazi, who's the founder of Pharmacet, who is the professor at Emory and at the VA that um, started the company and had for a long time relied on um, from public funded research grants, um, got a payout of $400 million. Mm -hmm. Emory also um, had some stake in the company, and I don't know the exact figure, but they were also paid for the value of their stake in Pharmacet. So it's worth noting that um, the public directly did not have a direct payout in that process. They did not have a stake in the company because that's typically not the way, um, even the the way that the public relationship between these startups is is organized, mm -hmm. where um, the public funding has been given as grants as opposed to a direct stake in in a firm. If we turn back to Gilead now, what's happened to their share price, their uh, profit since, you know, 
this this company was taken on because they've they've uh, employed some financial tactics to help them uh, increase some of those, haven't they? So indeed, so Gilead as a company has has made uh, in addition to their earnings calls last Monday or uh, just this previous day. Um, They've reported about $39 billion in revenue for hepatitis C. And this has been a big driver for their overall profits as a company. And since the beginning of 2015, they've announced $27 billion in what's called share buybacks. And um, share buybacks are essentially a financial maneuver in which companies buy back some of their own stocks from the market. And what that does is it actually increases the value of the remaining shares that are left. And companies are often evaluated based on their earnings per share metric. And so when you've reduced the number of shares available in the market, you can raise your earnings per share ratio. Mm. And so this is a financial tactic that is actually a common now pharmaceutical industry practice and also across corporate America. But... Um, they didn't exist since the beginning, say, for example, of stock markets. They were allowed by a rule change at the SEC in the early 1980s. And they've been driven in terms of the size and the scale of buybacks, driven by a couple of considerations. One is that shareholders, um, there's activist shareholders have really demanded share buybacks as a way of returning value to shareholders. Executive compensation is really tied to um, share value. And it's also rooted in the idea that the investment opportunities that might exist are too risky or not promising enough. So instead of spending that money on risky investments, it's better to uh, return or direct, I should say, the shares, uh, direct the profits back to share buy into share buybacks. So the picture you're painting here, where uh, big pharmaceutical companies now reduce their exposure to R&D risk, the, the chance that a drug doesn't turn out by buying companies when they are um, have something that looks much more promising and that money coming from from perhaps venture capitalists, perhaps the public purse. Uh, and then once they take a drug, uh, de- take it um, from development onto market, make a big profit, that those profits are then used for financial maneuvering rather than plowed back into R&D. It seems like pharma companies are, are much more like speculative funds. Yeah, so when I think I want to also just make a note here is that, so as a company, um, Gilead also does invest in its own research and development, but it actually pales in comparison to the value of their share buybacks. So they uh, have announced, as I said, $27 billion in buybacks. Uh, their R&D budget is somewhere in the neighborhood on an annual basis. This past year was about $3 billion. Um, and so there is a discrepancy there. And a lot of that R&D expense goes to running these late-stage clinical trials. So in terms of what, the, what happens with profits, part of it goes back to share buybacks. Another part of it um, is stockpiled potentially for, again, future acquisitions. And so it's not so much that you know big companies exist as in some ways speculative investment funds, but all research in some ways is speculative, right? So even if a government-based fund were to invest in research, they'd be making bets on one research project over another. Hmm. The challenge here is that big companies, they tie their, their strategy with it's tied to a long-term patent-protected monopoly over their uh, acquired compounds. 
And so they're able to accrue long-term profits and sort of create the cycle in which they can accumulate these profits and then reinvest it back, uh, some of that back into acquisitions and some of it into direct some of a lot of that back into share buybacks. Sort of, it sort of creates this cycle in which um, high prices become um, not only inevitable but uh, can crawl or even escalate upwards over over a period of time. And um, this, there's a couple of other consequences in which big companies essentially then have are able to use their monopoly power to do things like, for example, in the case of Gilead, actually. Um, avoid taxes. So they moved the intellectual property for Safasavir to Ireland, where the corporate tax rates are much lower. And a recent report just showed that they've um, saved $10 billion or avoided $10 billion in U.S. taxes. So uh, this actually is problematic given the fact that a lot of the supply of long-term research investments comes from that early stages, comes from those early stages of research. And so it, it leads to a model over the long term which can dissipate investment from research and development for, from the stages you really need it uh, while allowing big companies to accrue long-term profits, oftentimes at the, at the challenge for health systems to really be able to provide access to medicines as we've seen in the case of hepatitis C. And so there's real consequences for both patients today uh, in terms of access to those current innovations, but then there's a question about whether the future innovations are really going to be developed with this kind of a model or whether they become rare, rare occurrences. Was there any chance of uh, Sofospovir actually coming to the market um, without have being bought by a big companies such as Gilead? So when a small company is looking at their scenarios and they're mapping them out, they consider all the different um, scenarios. So actually, the U.S. the U, uh, US Senate investigation was done into the whole drug development process around Gilead and Pharmacet, and what and what it showed in some of the documents is that Pharmacet had indeed planned on taking the drug in one of their scenarios all the way to market. And what that would have required, they budgeted out um, 125 million dollars for phase three trials. They had looked at a global regulatory and distribution strategy. So this was one of the scenarios. But inevitably, the way I just described the market, the industry structure here, where you've got these big companies that are sitting there where with significant amounts of cash accrued from profits on prior drugs, as well as the relationships with regulators um, in, in those larger scale phase three trials, it, there's a real barrier to market uh, or bringing a compound all the way to health systems for these small companies when these big companies actually can um, really use their their a concentrated financial position as well as regulatory position to offer huge amounts for an acquisition. So in Pharmacet's case, for their shareholders um, and for their executives, it, when you can engage companies like Gilead and they engage three other companies in sort of a bidding contest and bid up the value of your company mm. and can, can get acquired, that's a much better strategy in their position than trying to bring the drug all the way to market. And we should also actually remember uh, and just look at the name of the company in this particular case, Pharmacet. Uh, they actually named the company uh, with the idea of developing assets for pharma. And so that was actually um, in the very business model. And I think a lot of small startups view that as being one their their big strategy really is to develop an asset 
that can be provided to uh, and acquired by pharmaceutical companies that are larger. So given that you know, it's, it's evident that you think the model at the moment for, for this is kind of broken, what would you like to see happening? I think one of the things we, we need to recognize here is that there was a medical breakthrough here. There's a cure for patients with hepatitis C, and that shouldn't get lost from the picture. But what, what we're asking really is the, the system that is behind it, are we actually identifying it and discussing it in the right way? Um, and are we actually creating a system where we're going to see more breakthroughs, more advances? One of the arguments is that the reason high prices need to exist is so that we get future cures. When we actually follow the money, we see that from Gilead is that actually a lot of the money goes back into uh, share buybacks, into financial maneuvers, and some of it gets stockpiled for acquisitions uh, for, of late-stage compounds, so companies like Gilead waiting for the drugs to come along. And so what we need to recognize is that for those cures, for those breakthroughs, it's really going to be incumbent that the early stages of research are invested in appropriately. And so taxpayer-funded research that helps crowd in venture capital is really important so that the trajectory towards medical breakthroughs is really set at that early point. Uh, and uh, it, it's, so it's really important that when we look at where the money goes, going back towards share buybacks, avoiding taxes, actually really hurts those early stages of research. And... Uh, that's the, the aim of this research has been to really look at all the different actors involved and whether you know, we can come up with the future breakthroughs and make sure that they're affordable and accessible for, for patients.